It's 5.13 here at WBAI in New York, and the time has come for this week's Gene Shepard episode. A continuation, actually the second show, second day back from the Holy Land. Uh, I asked two weeks ago, or maybe maybe last week, if uh, people were interested in hearing more of this series, and over, overwhelmingly, people said yes. Only one person found the travel stories boring. Well, gee... Uh, obviously a world traveler. So, uh, now last time Shepard promised tales of scuba diving, but, uh, he doesn't quite get around to it on this episode. Uh, well, we hear a little more about, uh, what it's like in the Negev desert, and also a lot about, uh, international flying and international airports and travel in general. Something, uh, in the news these days because people aren't doing it. And with that said, let's turn the clock back now to June 7th of 1966 and listen to Gene Shepard, his second report on his trip to the Holy Land. It's keeping it behind me. That's it, see. We do this only to loss up the guys that are trying to record the theme for their collection. And so. Watch me do my stuff. Or at the time. Boy, do I know some rotten obscene lyrics to that one. Bring it up there a little bit. That's it. Speaking of the obscenities. Come on. Come on. That's it. Be strong. Be brave. That's it. Up. Give them an inch, and those clutches will take the whole state of Iowa. Well, bring it up that thing. I'm a ding dong daddy front doors. What a ridiculous piece of cock. What is this? Ask me to sing, and bring it up there. We're going up and out. All right, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough, okay? Huh? Well, you know, there are times when you just want to bury the... You know, speaking of burying the routine, uh, I had an experience in the middle of the Negev Desert, which has given me a peculiar and a sickening insight. Not really sickening. Let's put it this way. It is as though somebody has pulled aside a veil of something you suspected all the time and never quite wanted to put into words, you know? Now, uh, the the uh, the moment that I am about to describe takes place in the desert city of Beersheba. It's a great name, Beersheba. This does not sound like Pittsburgh. Uh, even even the name, I mean, it excites you. When I say Beersheba, how do you see this? Or uh, uh, Dar es Salaam. Now, that is a name that does not sound like Elkin City, Indiana. Dar es Salaam. Beersheba, Rahamad el Ashi Dai. These are all great little towns that I have visited. And uh, I am about to approach Beersheba, see, and I'm sitting in this car, 
the front seat of the Jeep, and the sun is beating down on the roof. And Beersheba lays like some kind of an artificial creation right in the middle of this plain at the desert. You can look out. You can look out from Beersheba. You can stand in the city limits of Beersheba, and you can almost see Canton, Ohio. It is that flat. Nothing. Mile after mile. And way off in the distance, you can see outlined on the horizon a camel standing. And a Bedouin. And a couple of little people. You know, There's always two or three little tiny Bedouins running. I mean, you know that, uh, speaking of Bedouins, there's about 25 different uh, uh, taboos. Oh, 25, eight, 825,000 taboos that the Bedouin has about his women. And uh, one of them is that, uh, of course, uh, begin with, a Bedouin never works. This is women's work. Oh, the Bedouin chief, the Bedouin sheikh, is, uh, oh yeah, he's, he, he knows what life is about. And he sits all day in the tent. And outside of his tent, I saw this one moment, you know, it was so, so romantic, you couldn't believe it. But, uh, we came up over a hill, and there on the hillside was a Bedouin tent. Now these are true nomads. They, they move in the night, and they'll disappear, and nobody knows where they went. And the next morning, they may be 75 miles away in another wadi someplace, in another long, hot, dusty hill, and they'll take up their place there for a couple of days. And then they move on. Oh, endlessly, endlessly, they move over the desert. So we came down this long, uh, winding grade, and right there on the left is a Bedouin, a Bedouin tent. Now, how does a Bedouin tent look? Well, uh, it's a long, low, flat kind of tent, and it blends right in with the, with the surroundings. Uh, there's no color to a Bedouin tent. They don't paint them red or yellow or anything like that. These are sort of brown, earth-colored, black, uh, flat tents. And they look like they're made with about ten poles in them. And they, you've seen them. They look like waves, strange, uh, flat, kind of irregular-shaped, mushroom-like growths. And they're very low. Uh, I doubt whether anybody can really stand up in a Bedouin's tent. Uh, and they're low. You can see this dark tent laying up against the side of the wall, uh, this, the, the sheer cliff. And there it is, see? And there's about 25 goats wandering around, and they're being goats. And uh, you see two or three little little miniature figures, all swathed in, in the Bedouin dress, ragged-looking uh, uh, dress where their faces are all covered. You see these two little eyes, and they're kids. The children take care of all the stuff that is walking livestock. And so you see a little boy about, uh, it's hard to tell how old a Bedouin is, but let's say seven. Or nine, maybe. And there's a little girl. And by the way, the minute that a girl stops being in that age, she is whisked into the tent, and you never see these Bedouin girls, except under very special circumstances after that. Now, where is the Bedouin himself? Well, he's in the tent, presumably. And there you see this thing laying up against the side of this wall, and standing in front of the tent, tied down, uh, he's tethered there, is this magnificent white Arab stallion. I mean, you couldn't believe it. It's, it's just like like some out of some fantastically corny, rotten movie that Preminger would make. It's a white stallion standing there, and there are two or three camels grazing behind the tent. We drove on past. I looked out. There it was, a real Bedouin situation. And ahead of me, down this long, curving road, I could see Beersheba. Beersheba is a traditional meeting ground where all the great caravans that moved across Palestine and the Middle East hundreds of years ago and even to this day, they all crisscrossed at Beersheba. Beersheba was like the Times Square of the Negev at one point. 
And the Arabs, every morning at 4 on a Thursday, it's always on a Thursday, have their market. And they come in from out wherever it is they are, out in that darkness out there in that great howling wilderness of the Negev, and they trade camels, or they trade goats, or they trade cheese, or they trade the girls, uh, <laughs> whatever it is they're trading. Well, the, the ways of the Arab are, are uh, difficult to ascertain, even at this point, the Bedouins. And so I see Beersheba ahead of me. You know, I, I feel this in my, inside me, uh, you know, coming up with this, this fantastic excitement. I am, the, I am the man of the urban world, the western man, see, approaching one of the ancient cities of mystery, one of the ancient cities of desire and intrigue. I am approaching the great crossroads. Bring it in now. That's it. Sneak it in there. How many cues do you need? Just keep watching me. It's all right. <laughs> that means bring it in, okay? And you can see this city lying there all by itself in the middle of the desert. Nothing but the big sun hanging over it. Beersheba, the crossroads of the camel caravans, thousands of years old, and thousands of camels have crossed these plains, have stopped briefly near the oasis, right outside of Beersheba, and then moved on to Arabia, to Persia, to China, to the great ports of India, and back down to Spain, and to the edges of that vast subcontinent, the Middle East, Beersheba. Oh, wow. All right, there it is. Now keep it up there and watch for my cue, all right? Just set it back, all right? And uh, I said to myself, wow, you know, Beersheba. Isn't that an exciting name? Say, you know, they say that, that it doesn't sound like T-neck. Although, you know, ironically enough, I suppose to a Bedouin, Teaneck sounds like an exotic name. Teaneck. Beersheba. Ashkelon. How about that for a name? Ashkelon. How about Jaffa? Laying on the Mediterranean. Hot, steamy, the Arab quarter of Tel Aviv. <laughs> and so I came down that long road saying, it's Beersheba. And the guide sitting next to me and says, well, where are we going to stay? He says, you won't believe it. He's a Romanian. See, he says, unbelievable. I said, really? And he says, yep, unbelievable. And ten minutes later, we pull up in the middle of this plain. You can see nothing for mile after mile after mile. We pull up in the middle of this plain in front of a little bit of, oh, I couldn't believe it. A little bit of Las Vegas. The Desert Inn of Beersheba. It was made out of plastic. It had plastic palm trees because they had, you know, they had uh, come to believe, like so many of us do, that the plastic version of something is somehow even better than the real version of that thing. I wonder how many people today own plastic roses because they're so lifelike. <laughs> and they walk past florists every day where they can get the real lifelike thing. But the thing about plastic roses is you can wash them off, you know? And you can just flip them, and the dust comes off. And they never lose their petals. And so here were plastic palm trees and green grass standing on the dark, howling plain of Beersheba, where the camels had crossed for centuries before. The Bedouins had rested, and intrigue was a way of life. The Desert Inn. Uh, 
And oh, by the way, their proudest boast was that there is another Desert Inn and it's in Las Vegas. Believe it or not, it's based on the Desert Inn. And so I walked into this unbelievable place and it's all air conditioned. And there are a thousand ladies running around wearing blue hair. And they got sequins. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, it was eerie. It was like, like all of a sudden I'm right in the middle of, uh, well, Hackensack, maybe. With a little dash of showbiz, you know? And there's a big sign right there by the by the place where you sign in, you register at the Desert Inn. Doesn't that sound exciting, the Desert Inn and Beersheba? Well, you'll get just about as, ex- more, about as much excitement in the Desert Inn and Beersheba as you will at the Howard Johnson Motel outside of Worcester, Mass. Because they're blood sisters, they're, they're kin, you know? And I walk up to the desk there, and there is standing this man who's, who's obviously a man of the Middle East. And he's got these these narrow eyes. He watches me, and he's got high cheekbones. And he's got dark hair, and he's got this this uh, impenetrable, uh, difficult to pin down accent. Like, where is your papers, please? And I reached out and said, "I'm in Beersheba, the Desert Inn. This is where Peter Lorre was at his best. This is where Victor Jory. You know, this is the same country where Victor Jory and where where uh, who are those other guys? Two cigarettes." Victor Jory, what was that, that, that great movie I saw as a kid one time? This girl, Two Cigarettes. Now, what was the name of it? Beau Jest. No, it wasn't Beau Jest. It was something else like that. And uh, uh, George Brent, I think, was in it. Or somebody like that. I remember Victor McLaughlin was a sergeant of the French Legion, of uh, <laughs> the French Foreign Legion. Yeah, under two flags. Yeah, this is that country. You know, this is where it is. And I am standing in front of a sinister desk clerk. At the Desert Inn. He says, there is your papers, please. And I take out my my passport and I hand it to him. And I try to look mysterious, you know, as though I'm an enemy agent. Here, uh, a James Bond. He says, uh-huh. If you don't mind if you peek here for a moment. The police, you know, wish to see it. <laughs> of course. And he puts it away under the desk. And then he says, uh, would you care to make reservations for the desert, the Bedouin's tent tonight? I said, the Bedouin's tent? He says, yes, the Bedouin's tent. The reservations are going fast. And there I see this placard done with sequins, done in the best style of uh, of uh, Las Vegas. It says, see Harry Watanabe and his swinging four at the desert tent tonight, the Bedouin's tent. Why, well, look at that. I says, my George, I'm going to have the real thing. I'm at the Middle East now. And for years, I've been hearing about when you get to the Middle East, you'll see these real belly dancers, not these cheap imitation belly dancers that we've got here down in the 20s, you know, places down here in 14th Street. This is the real thing. This is Beersheba. And if I stand up on my tiptoes now and look over that potted palm over there, that lady with the blue hair, I can see a real camel out there. See, he's looking at him. He's looking in the window right now at me. Yeah, little did I realize that that was a plastic camel, by the way. But if I stand up on my tiptoes, I can see a real camel. Beersheba, and tonight I'm going to be in the Bedouin's tent. I made my reservations. I entered the automatic elevator with the air conditioning blowing down my back and the sound of music playing T for two in my ears. And I was ready for a night of Mid-Eastern adventure in the Bedouin's tent. Very good now. And you just stick around and I'll finish these little whoopies. 
Speaking of deserts, that reminds me. This is W O R A M and FM New York. <laughs> well, and, uh, really we've got with us here uh, W B A I New York. Now back to Gene Shepard, nineteen sixty-six. Wilmoth. It says for the. It's a shepherd. A guy wrote me a note here. What did he say about that? He says Shepard, are guys who wear these Wilmoth disguises, these suits that are guaranteed to make them look tall, thin, and like James Bond. Are they really all Wilmoth in a yard wide, or are they faking it? Well, for the comfort and the, the feeling that you are tall and skinny, Woolmouth will build a suit that will make you look six and a half feet tall and in the newest summer weave. And uh, I would suggest you get down there fast because uh, the line is beginning to form. This is at Woolmouth, uh, let's see, W-O-H-L-M-U-T-H, in Ridgewood, New Jersey. There's a Woolmouth store at 5740 Myrtle Avenue. Ask for Morris. In Jersey City at 2826 Kennedy Boulevard, ask for Morris. <laughs> well, I'm just reading the copy. <laughs> I can't invent it. I couldn't invent a gag. That, that sounds like right out of Catch-22. Let's see. We've got the... What have we got here? Rover. Uh, speaking of Catch-22, we have uh, Rover. You know, there's a theory around today uh, that I've seen expressed in many places. And that is that modern man is much more interested in talking about his problems than really doing something about them. Uh, and it's this paradox of the car, for example. Everybody's talking about safety in cars, you know, Ralph Nader's book, and so on. And yet, I think secretly, everybody wants to drive a Grand Prix, uh, air-cooled, uh, four-cylinder, Offenhauser, 278-horsepower machine with no brakes at all. I secretly believe this is what we really want to do. And what we say is another thing. I've often, I've often thought about this quality in us. What do we really want? Seriously. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, many a guy who says he wants love from a chick, that's the last thing he wants. And he'll write 25 novels proving that he wants love. Believe me, if he ever runs into it, he turns green. And then he says she's destroying him. <laughs> so what do you want? You know, it's a good question. And uh, here, a good case in point is the Rover 2000 TC, which incidentally, truly, is being studied by automotive engineers all over the world. It is a genuine achievement in automobile safety and uh, functional uh, design, true functional design. And yet, I'll guarantee you, most people don't even know the name of Rover, except to think in terms of a short, fat, black dog with one bad eye and bad knees. Uh, the Rover has been made for many years in England as one of the most respected marks, and these people are going to be in business for a long time. And by the way, there is a, a, a feeling among many automobile people that what Rover is putting out today will become the style five years from now. This is the Rover 2000 TC, a great car. And though speaking of uh, myths, uh, we will be live at the limelight this week. Absolutely. I've been out for the last two weeks in the Middle East. And uh, we will be live at the limelight this week. And I am going to do, I'm going to wear my tarbouche down there this week. Do you mind? I'll tell you, there's a very funny thing about hats. I collect hats wherever I go. You know that the, the quickest way you can begin to have an appreciation of the feeling that a hat creates in a guy's world, his own inner world, is to put on a hat yourself. Now, for example, I think a lot of people who don't understand LBJ, all they've got to do is put on a 10-gallon Stetson and walk around for five minutes, and you will understand more about LBJ than you will in all the editorials written in Time, Life, Zip, Whoopi, Pick, Realist, all of them. 
It's a fact. And and I put on my tarbouche, which I picked up in Nazareth, and, and in 30 seconds, uh, I find myself looking for hashish. Um, which is something I, you know, I mean, but it, 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 it works a strange metamorphosis on you. And that I am going to use, I'm going to wear my tarbouche this week down at the Lambda. I think I'm going to do my whole show wearing it. It's a magnificent uh, headdress. You've seen the tarbouche. You know what a tarbouche is? That's the thing that you always see Arabs. You know the Lawrence of Arabia? That's a tarbouche. And, and, uh, and you can get all styles. And uh, furthermore, there is a dress tarbouche and there's a work tarbouche. There is a ritual tarbouche, for example, which would be the Arab's version of a tuxedo. You know, he's going in full dress. It's a thing he only wears uh, like once or twice a year. You know, he puts this thing on. That is a ritual tarbouche. It has gold all over it and has dark little scimitars woven into it. This is his ritual tarbouche. He would never be seen, you know, just going out in the afternoon with this thing on. Then there is his dress tarbouche, which he does wear on his equivalent of a Sunday afternoon. You know, when he's going to visit his mother-in-law or something, he puts on his dress tarbouche. Then there is the work tarbouche, which is either black or white. You never see them in any other color. It's either black or white. And generally, the black denotes a man who's an elder. This is a man who's achieved a certain eminence in the tribe. And he puts on a black tarbouche and he wears this big... Bar- and have you seen that band they wear around that holds the tarbouche down? That is traditionally made out of camel hair. It's made out of uh, camel fur, and it's woven, this thing, and they're very expensive. And so I picked myself up a dress tarbouche of blood red, uh, which is, uh, uh, well, it's, it's uh, just like it is, and it sweeps way down. And the minute you pull this thing, and, the, and the, the Arab who showed me how to use it, this is very important on how you do this, there is a style in putting a tarbouche on. You know, it isn't just a bed sheet, you know, you just hang around. And it has tremendous style. You put this thing on right, you swing it around, and you bring the other side down, and you allow the the, uh, the long camel hair tassels to drift down over your shoulder and back down over your chest, and all of a sudden, you know more about Lawrence of Arabia than you can ever get out of reading anything that you've ever read about him. You know why he was suddenly bitten with a fanatical bug for those hills. Oh, yeah, you know, you just, you just couldn't help it. I would love to wear my tarbouche at the Four Seasons. Or go into the horn and hard art with it. Just wear it, you know, sit down and say, would you please pass the catcher, please? And just sit there with this fantastic thing hanging down. I have a feeling that, 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 uh, courage is directly related to the peculiar cost, the costuming that people wear. Uh, have you noticed that more and more chicks today, for example, are wearing big hats? And they are getting more and more, the girls in our world, are getting more and more aggressive. They're getting tougher and tougher. Whereas you will find that men today are wearing tinier and tinier hats and eventually will probably not wear any at all. It's drifting away. Uh, you, go to, you go to the Australian uh, outback and have you ever seen those big Australian hats they wear? I brought one of those home. Let me tell you, Dad. You put one of those Australian uh, bush hats on. It's big Stetson that has a thing that the, the, the side flips up. You put one of those babies on and you are not going to be pushed around by the program director. Especially if you get one that has an ocelot band around it. You know, instead of a little uh, dyed silk band, it's got ocelot. And you just walk in, you look them in the eye, and you get what you want. Because you deserve it, that's all. You just, you know, you deserve it. It's coming out from inside of you. On the other hand, have you noticed W.C. Fields, when he wears those great hats, he always wore these fantastic hats. 
big, tall, silk hat he waves, puts it on. And one of the sad things that I saw, by the way, was a sad little moment in France the other day. When I, I came back, I was on my way back from the Middle East, and I stopped in Paris for two days. Uh, I, when I, whenever I take a trip like this, you, you got, it's like the bends, you know. When you go someplace that's really, <laughs> that's really out as far as your own culture is concerned, I would suggest you do it gradually. Don't go immediately from Hackensack to El Hashid Dar es Salaam. It's just too much. I mean, you get headaches and you sit there and you look like you're in the middle of a movie and you can't figure out what's going on. You know, I'm telling, I'm telling you seriously. You know that there's a thing today that that uh, psychologists and Doctors, medical doctors have begun to notice, and it's called the jet syndrome. You know that they're noticing people who fly all around the world, all over, for at least three days after they get where they're getting. Uh, there is a sense of profound unreality, and many people go to the doctor when they arrive. They don't know what's the matter with them. They feel like they're out of their head. Uh, their digestion gets off. Their time sense is all screwed up, just completely gone. You know, you, uh, well, you, you don't realize what a finely tuned creature you are at the time. Your, your body is attuned to time. And suddenly, they throw you in a jet, and four and a half hours later, you're in a place which is six hours time difference from you. You are really in trouble. And particularly if you land in a place where the culture is at great odds with the culture you came from. It reacts badly on you. That many people have spent two weeks, say, for example, in uh, India, and have not hit the ground once in two weeks. They just can't remember a thing. They come back. I, I've known people who've come back from a trip like that, and they can't remember anything. It's like trying to remember a movie. It's not real. Have you ever tried to remember a James Bond movie? Really? You just know a lot of guys ran around, there was a lot of shooting, you know, and this chick came out, there was a lot of, you know, yelling, and he got her in the sack and all that. But you can't really remember what the heck happened. All you know is that for two and a half hours, you were in this fantastic LSD thing, you know, and and uh, you can't remember it. Well, this is a problem with traveling now. Now, there was a time when, when people would say, for example, go via boat, and for a week, they're in limbo, they're in purgatory. They have left their old culture behind. And by the time you're on a boat for a week, you have assumed a new identity, really, a new culture. You're a sea culture now. You begin to ad adjust. Have you ever taken a long sea voyage? You begin to adjust to the boat itself. You no longer think of Hackensack. You think of the, of, the, of the bar downstairs and the water and the ocean. It's a totally new world. So that by the time you land at Liverpool or Marseille, you are ready to accept a new culture. Because you've already accepted one. It's like, it's like a purgatory. It's like in between two things. But you put a guy in a plane at six o'clock in the morning and he wakes up, he goes through Queens, he drives through in the, in the cab or the bus and he gets in the airplane at Idlewild and and off he goes. And they come and they bring him scrambled eggs and he falls asleep a little bit at six in the morning and he had a party last night and they were seeing him off and, and the, the, Hostess comes along and she asks him if he wants a martini. They always ask you if you want a martini at 5 in the morning. It's a ridiculous hour. Yeah, they do. Already you're starting to get loused up. You see, because this crew, this crew is, a, say, a French crew. They're, they're on the old time. They just flew in this morning. They're going back, you know. They're still, to them, it's uh, 8 o'clock at night. So it doesn't seem nutty for them to come around and give you a martini. And you take it, you know. We're, we're funny. When you get something free, you'll take it. And so along comes this chick, and you find yourself doing stuff that in your right mind you would never do. I mean, six or seven o'clock in the morning, she says, would you like a drink? And you say, yeah. 
And the next thing you know, you got four martinis and you got four pounds of, of uh, toasted almonds in your gut. And then you start drinking Bloody Marys. And you're, you're all confused. Now, by now, you know, your system is, is revolting about this. It's, but you're in an airplane, you see. An airplane gives you much license. It's like being in an automatic elevator. Yet you are not part of a world, you see, because you're not, you know, you know, you don't contact the sea, the earth, the air. You know that when you're flying over the ocean uh, at 38, 39, 40,000 feet in a jet, you know that you rarely see the ocean? People keep thinking, oh, gee, I'll look out, I'll see the ships down there and all that. You never see out over the Atlantic, you see nothing but this long bank of clouds constant. That's all you see. It's like never, never land. And so you, your body is in never, never. You're drinking martinis. And you look at your watch, and uh, gee, it's uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, 6.28. I've had three martinis already. And uh, the chick brings the uh, scrambled eggs, and you knock that down. Then they follow that with liqueurs. Can you imagine following this? She, she gives you the scrambled eggs, and they come along with the, with the Benedictine and the Drambouille, and you knock two of those down. And by this time, your system's going, help, help, oh, wow, wow, what, what the hell's going on, oh, wow, wow. And you're sitting there casually, and across the aisle is this French chick with the long ivory cigarette holder. And you've got this conversation going, and she keeps fading in and out. And she doesn't understand English. You don't understand French. And you reach out, and you pinch her. And she yells, and the stewardess comes, and you holler. And they take you back and put your head under the water in the job. And this goes, ah, you know, oh, oh it's going to. And there's all other guys doing the same thing. See, this lasts for what seems like five and a half minutes. And suddenly... The, the guy comes out, he says, well, would you please uh, try that for seatbelt? Seven languages, and you can't pick yours out uh, because of the martinis. And they come, they put the seatbelt on you, and then, blah, you land. And two and a half seconds later, you're in this strange place, and it all looks like a set. It looks like a gimmick to you. Now, I'm not exaggerating this. I'm not at all. You walk through... Uh, Orly Airport as though it's a dream. It just doesn't seem real. Now, of course, the thing that must be said about these these airports and that is that now there is such a thing as Airport International. The, all airports look alike. Absolutely. Uh, you, you would think, for example, that if you go into Orly Airport, somehow it would look French. It does not. It just is modern airport. That's all you can call it. There's a lot of stainless steel and a lot of airline stewardesses walking around, a lot of big signs that say arrival, uh, that say uh, lockers. Uh, it looks exactly like Kennedy, and you're walking around there. But yet there's something a little out of focus. You can't quite figure out what it is. There's a funny look in the people's eyes. And uh, it's all a little strange. You're in Airline International. You're in the, and, and this is designed also to euchre you. Uh, instead of gradually introducing you to France or to Athens or to... Uh, Nigeria, all you do is spend, it's like an extension of the plane. You know, all planes are the same. Uh, the French plane on Air France uh, is a Boeing 707, just like the plane that's on TWA that flies to Chicago. It's a Boeing 707. And they all look the same inside, the same seats, the same windows. Uh, even, even it's getting to the point now where they all have the same kind of food in a nutty kind of way. Because all of the airlines are trying to outdo each other with gourmet food. And there is such a thing as Gourmet Taste International. You know, the uh, filet of sole, Amandine comes. And you get this on the German plane. You get this on the Israeli plane. You get this on all the planes. They're going to arrive, you know, you eat it. And you're, you're, you're never really in the country. Uh, you're just sort of vaguely in the country. And since all these hostesses all speak nine languages, 
you don't make any contact at all there either. She speaks your language, and that's the end of it, see? And so you land in this airport and come down, and uh, now you're in Orly. And you have to keep pinching yourself. I'm in France. France. What the hell, France? You look around, and now you're sitting in a restaurant. And you pick up the menu, and it says hamburger, cheeseburger. It says scrambled eggs, ham and eggs. It says uh, English-style roast beef. It's right. I'm in France, is it? Because you see, immediately they've spotted you as a non-Frenchman. So they give you the English menu. So you sit there and you say, I'll have a cheeseburger, uh, cheeseburger et mal. Uh, you're trying to bring France into it or something. Or, uh, you know, somehow. And he brings you the cheeseburger, brings you a little cheese and that. And you sit and you eat it. And nine and a half minutes later, you are in Tel Aviv. In, again, an international airport. You still don't believe it. You're still in the same place. You, it's like you're still in Idlewild. And then the doors open, you step out, and instantly it hits you. Instantly, there's a great blast of something. It's the air. It's the, it's the atmosphere. It's the smell. It's everything. You are now suddenly, without any equivocation, you are now in another world, and you ain't ready for it. You are not ready for it. And you sort of stagger down the street, and you see all these, these signs in, in the Hebraic and you see these arching palm trees, and you see that sun hanging over you, and it's 197 degrees in the shade. And you see these fantastic women walking all around you, and you see guys with tarbushes, and you say, oh boy. And you think, what is it? What? You're trying to grab it. And this is why people, many people, uh, go by tours. Because there is that momentary sense, that wild sense of, of uh, insecurity. That it's all a set. Can you imagine yourself in the James Bond world instead of watching it? Well, you'd need a guide. You notice that Bond doesn't need a guide? You'd need a guide. You'd have to have somebody to tell you when to pull your gun. Uh, somebody to tell you when to shoot the chick in the gut or whatever it is, you know. Because you can't relate to this thing. You know that this, this is really uh, related to another problem, a strange kind of thing that I read a paper on here not long ago. Uh, do you know that when, they, when guys get into battle, because your life is so... Oriented, all of our lives, we we uh, you know we we think in terms of not killing people. We think in terms of danger is uh, is hypothetical, especially when you're a movie goer. You know, people who watch movies rarely think when they see James Bond shoot a girl in the gut that he has seen somebody get shot with a forty-five. It becomes a bit. It's a thing, and it's very unreal. And you know, one of the big problems they're finding today is that when guys suddenly get into a situation of danger, genuine, real danger, they are totally powerless to act because they cannot accept the fact that it's real. And they found in many of the combat units in Vietnam, for example, that uh, guys would be put into a situation suddenly and they're mowed down without even so much as pulling their gun. They never fire a shot. And they interviewed a lot of the people who were wounded, and they find that the guy who is the more involved movie fan, isn't this a nutty little fact, is the guy who was most likely to get wounded. Never thought about that, did you? That, you know, shooting is something that, you know, it's a pow, pow, hey, you're dead, you know, Charlie. All right, it's, I'm the good guy now, and you're the bad guy. Okay, bang, bang, that kind of thing. Well, all of a sudden, he gets a slug through the gut, and he is shocked because it's never seemed real to him before. Well, that's what happens to a traveler when he gets out 
and he steps out of the out of the out of the air conditioned world of air of uh, airport international out of the world of 707 caravel 720 super star flight jet stream he steps out of that world and now he is suddenly without any warning in a world of reality and he's liable to get run over by the first car that comes down the street yeah and your stomach gets upset vague things you know start working on you uh back home it is now eight o'clock at night here it is uh, seven in the morning, we'll say. And you are suddenly, your, your system is still working on an old time scale. And, uh, five minutes later, somebody takes you to lunch. You're not, you're not used to going to lunch at three in the morning, are you? You go to lunch. And what do they give you? They give you sheep's eyeballs. And, uh, you, you down the sheep's eyeballs. And it's, uh, it's, uh, vaguely scented with tobacco leaves. And ancient, uh, uh, Middle Eastern spices. And you put that down. And by nightfall, you feel like you're out of your head. Literally out of your head. This is a strange unreality. And so I am now approaching, and I've been in, in, uh, the Negev now for three or four days. And I'm beginning to see reality, see. And there it is ahead of me. Beersheba. The great crossroads of the camel caravans of the past. Do you know that, that there is a, there are still many re- remains around there. There was one tribe. Uh, that that uh, they've uh, recently discovered, the archaeologists have recently discovered, a tribe of Negev desert denizens who have disappeared almost completely. In fact, they have disappeared. There's no known trace of any of them still alive or even any of their descendants. A tribe which worked entirely. All they did was guard caravans. And they built uh, forts. They built uh, like what would be their equivalent of pillboxes. In that area, which was always an area of raiding marauders, the Bedouins always marauding uh, and raiding the camel caravans, and these guys built forts all up in these 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 unbelievably barren hills, and all they did was guard caravans, and for which, of course, they were paid. Uh, they they uh, that was how they lived, and they guarded them. And night and day, 24 hours a day, they were on guard, watching the caravans to see that the Bedouins did not attack them. This is all around Beersheba. You can still see the remains. And another thing they did, too, they knew that these guys had discovered some way of living in the desert where there was no water at all. And they were able to exist. How did they do it? You know, this has been a mystery for 2,000 years. And recently, a scientist, by going out into the desert... And uh, working and living in the remains of where they these people lived. He doped it out and has been able to live in the desert himself now for over a year and a half. You know how they did it? You couldn't believe how these guys did it. Uh, how shall I describe this? They, I, saw, I saw where they did it. On the hillsides, these early tribes had discovered that at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, as you know, in the desert world... It gets very cold at night compared to the daytime temperatures. And so during the day, it may be 100 degrees or more. No humidity at all. And suddenly at night, it uh, drops to 55. It's just bitter cold. It feels very cold after all day in this fantastic heat. It'll just drop precipitously. Because you see sand and that kind of world does not hold the heat much. There are no. It just instantly uh, changes from, uh, from hot to cold. Now what happened? They discovered very, very many years ago, about 3,000 years ago, they figured, that water condensed when it got cold. What little water there was in the air condensed on a certain kind of rock, a certain kind of spongy, porous rock. 
that was uh, a lava rock. And these guys built fields of these rocks piled up in triangular-shaped piles. And next to each pile of rocks was a tiny trench that was lined with stone. And at two in the morning, all this water would suddenly condense and these rocks would absorb it. And at the first rays of the sun would come, that, that, that light would hit the rays of the sun. This would condense. You know how dew condenses? And it would run down these little, it was always built on the side of the hill, you see. And gravity would carry it down the side of the hill uh, in this little, this little uh, groove, this little track. And carry it into a tank that they built out of porous fiber which would absorb it like a, like a blotter, see? And then they could squeeze it out. How do you like that? And these guys not only lived, they flourished, and they grew gardens. No one has ever been able to figure this out. How they were able to grow gardens in the middle of the desert. And do you know that the, 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 right now, at this moment, in the Negev Desert, there is a feeling that this will be the way that they can defeat the aridity of the desert without bringing pipelines of water 14 million miles that they're going to do this in a modern technique. And they discovered it from this ancient tribe that lived on the, the hillsides guarding this uh, caravan route. Well, the, the scientist who discovered this, he, he, couldn't figure, he couldn't figure it out. You know? He didn't really discover it. He suspected it. And, and the, the, he, could not, he could not really prove this because it seemed so unreal. You, you would not believe that you could get that much water out of the air so that a whole tribe could live, would you? It sounds like uh, something that wouldn't work. It sounds like a great idea, but something that wouldn't actually do it. Well, he moved out into the desert himself, and he has been living totally incommunicado for two years and has grown a garden, a beautiful garden out in the desert, and uh, he's one man, you see. He's out there with his wife. He's grown this garden, and nobody sees him. And for over two years, he has existed in the middle of the, of the most arid desert in the world. Completely arid. And it's not too far from the Dead Sea. Using techniques that this ancient tribe had perfected thousands of years before. And you know, even to this day, that tribe is vaguely loved in that district. That uh, even when the various, uh, you know, the Turks occupied that area, uh, there were all kinds of different, uh, the Romans occupied that area at one point. There's been, this is the great uh, uh, turbulent Middle East, these deserts. And these people always, whenever the new crowd would come, they would continue to do what they did. Uh, they never got in, they had no hate for anybody. This is a fascinating, uh, they found a lot about this tribe. They did not uh, bug anybody, they weren't after anybody, and all they, all they wanted to do always was to maintain their little civilization in the desert. And the theory is that they gradually intermarried with all of the various uh, tribes that moved through that area and eventually disappeared entirely. They say that if you go into certain side streets, do you know that, that it is not uncommon to, to run across totally blonde Arabs. Now, most people think, you know, they'd be surprised. Blonde, they look exactly like crew-cut guys from uh, Indiana. And the reason this is so is because many of the crusaders intermarried with the Arabs of those ages and left, and once in a while one is born. It looks exactly like a crusader. Um, they look like an Irishman. And he's living in the middle of a family uh, that looks, you know, very Arabic. Uh, he's a throwback to one of the very early uh, ancestors of this particular group. I'm sorry. You know, I, I wanted to tell you the story of the of the desert. All right, we'll save that for tonight, uh, for tomorrow night. Okay, 
the fantastic show in the desert, the desert tent of the Bedouin Sheikh, outside of that little bit of Las Vegas, in the middle of the ancient, the ancient world that goes back 20 million years. Uh, do you want to hear that tomorrow? Okay. Uh, oh boy, you know, I'll tell you this as a final parting shot. If there's anything that I, I can't think of anything in my life that I would rather invest in than travel. Nothing. Uh, how many cars have you bought in your life that you don't even remember? Or suits that you thought you had to have and you never wear again? You know, many of the things, but once you have been in the desert, once you have been somewhere, you can never forget it. And they can never take it away from you. Once you've walked on the streets of Bangkok, you just don't ever lose it. Ever. You have been forever changed in a subtle way. And you find yourself fighting against it, too. And yet you also find yourself welcoming it. This strange, subtle change. Once you've really traveled a great deal, you can never be didactic about things which are so glibly said by those who have not been on the scene. It just never are the same. That's all we get of the Palisades jingle. I'm sorry. <laughs> and that concludes this morning's Gene Shepherd episode from June 7th, 1966. And by popular acclaim, we'll bring you another episode from this series on next week's broadcast. As well as the further adventures of Jack Flanders and his return to Inverness, our ZBS radio drama, and more of the British invasion at the top of the show. On Sunday night, the Golden Age of Radio will be on, 7.30 to 9. And uh, I'm not sure what the lineup is going to be yet. So uh, tune in and find out. Uh, very likely an Arch Obler drama from World War II that we've been featuring for the last couple of weeks, and uh, and probably some more comedy for these uh, tense and difficult times. And speaking of tense and difficult times, it's uh, coming up on 6 a.m. You're tuned to listener-sponsored WBAI in New York. And uh, here I am, still all alone in the radio station. No sign of Marjorie Moore and Sunrise. No sign of Eddie uh, Soto, the engineer. No sign of anything at all. So, <laughs> what's going on this